0: Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Jay Wurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Matt Pestronk, president of Post Brothers. I've known Matt from Philadelphia, and he is one of the top developers in the Northeast, in the multifamily sector. We discuss how Matt got started in real estate, moving from commercial brokerage into developing a billion multifamily development shop. We talk about how you make money in the real estate business and building a sustainable firm that can withstand real estate cycles and grow to continuously doing projects in incredibly high barrier to entry markets. We also talk about office multi-conversions and the opportunity he's seeing today, what he's putting in those buildings, the amenities, how he analyzes deals, the most important metric he thinks about in real estate. This is an awesome conversation. Please enjoy my conversation today with Matt Pestrunk. So I don't know if you're going to hate me for starting here, but one of the first times I came to know you was a story I heard. We were, I think, building a hotel in Philadelphia at the time. I was spending a lot of time in Philadelphia. And I heard of this guy who's a real estate guy. He's building an apartment and he was doing it non-union and he was pretty tough. And he was fighting the union, going against them. And all of a sudden he was trying to get some big crane across like this huge bridge in philadelphia and the union like somehow shut down the bridge i don't know how they did it but they did and they tried to delay your project but in the end i think you got it built but i want to start there and and what kind of that was all about and how that actually impacted the company that that you built and your construction ideas going forward
1: thanks jake so that was a fun time that was a long time ago probably 2012 maybe 2013 we were building a project and we serve as our own general contractor and we did not we are not an all union general contractor meaning we don't hire all union or only union signatory subcontractors we hire contractors based on merit a lot of them happen to be Union signatories, but when we did that project. The unions were fighting us heavily because at the time, the all major construction in downtown Philadelphia was heavily unionized. That's, I think, since changed. And so we were the only general contractor that was also a developer. So they, the unions weren't used to that model where they couldn't interfere with other projects or threaten to walk off of third party projects that were otherwise all union if this one wasn't all union because we didn't serve third party customers so that was that was the genesis of that being our own general contractor has allowed us to create a lot of value in the procurement and supply chain and contracting process so i think it's been i think it's been good generally and
0: now, how many projects are you GC-ing yourself That you yourself of your projects that you're doing? And are you doing any third-party development at all with this
1: GC license that you have? We don't do any third-party work whatsoever. So when we think about development, we're taking equity risk on the, uh, as an owner. And so that's what to us that's what development means. Being a general contractor means somebody who's actually performing the work uh, of of development, performing the construction. So we don't do that for we don't do third party development work on a fee basis and we don't do third party general contracting.
0: How has being a contractor enabled you to grow the business versus going a traditional route and just hiring a GC? Gives us better control over quality and schedule. I think. I want us to go back a little bit because we just jumped into it, but
1: tell me how you got started in real estate. So, we bought our first building. Well, how I got started in... The way I got started in actual real estate was being an office leasing broker right out of college in Philadelphia, leasing office buildings in South Jersey, Southern New Jersey. So. Tell
0: me how you transition from being an office broker to building your own real estate platform.
1: Well, there was some in between. So around 20 years ago, we knew we wanted to start what is now Post Brothers. And we found some potential investors that were going to back us who were unrealistic about what market price was for real estate in 2003. And we sort of bootstrapped an acquisition platform with which is or what you'd call it a, a deal shop was just you know which is a common term today but sort of not widely done then these guys said they were these investors said they were going to back us we found some really interesting properties to buy at good values in 2003 and those investors didn't think they were priced well which was of course like Idiotic in retrospect. They were totally wrong about what the prices were. Values had probably of the things we were looking at buying that we didn't buy. The values had doubled by 2006 from 2003. At least, at least the equity values and the gross values probably, probably doubled a decade later. So anyway, we realized, I'd say within a short period of time, my brother and I realized that we needed to be able to have our own pursuit capital to be able to be taken seriously and have independence and entrepreneurial runway to create a real estate you know a real real estate business. So I became a commercial mortgage broker and my brother got a job doing asset management and development and construction overseeing construction management for another developer. And so sort of back to the drawing board in 03. And then in 06, we bought our first building was 10 units. Then through the time Lehman went out, we bought four more projects. They were all successful. And we owned about $30 million of real estate at the time that Lehman went out. A tiny company. I wasn't working there full time. My brother was. And we really We executed on those projects through the financial crisis by just doing what we said we would do. Multifamily held up pretty well during the financial crisis. These assets, it was a very simple investment thesis, we were buying buildings in germantown and mount airy in philadelphia what they call northwest philadelphia the idea was houses on a block would be half a million dollars but there would be a rundown apartment building getting five or six hundred dollars in rent for a one bedroom which is you know i think a pretty obvious opportunity to upgrade the multifamily stock this is years before there was any type of you know political backlash against upgrading workforce housing we made a database When we decided this, our investment thesis was going to be upgrading, upgrading and massively renovating apartment buildings in this one neighborhood. Our thesis was there were a hundred apartment houses between 50 and 150 units, round numbers, and maybe three to five of them, three to 5% of the inventory traded a year. So you're talking about somebody every, the average holding period for every building was around two decades. So that meant that people had owned buildings a lot of people had owned buildings from before the early 90s snl crisis or like a long time before or at that time maybe they'd bought them you know in the early 90s so in any event everyone had a very low basis no one was motivated of these owners to renovate the buildings so it was kind of People, we were we were not from Philadelphia, so we were explaining to people what our business plan was in like Philadelphia, as you know, is a fairly provincial market to put it mildly. And people were telling us like our plan would never work and our plan did work. And then by the time 2015 came around of those hundred buildings, every single one of them traded and people copied our business plan, which was fine. Um, we sold everything we had in that market within... Five years of the GFC, give or take. And so we were pretty happy to be, we made money on all of it. And that was like the early iteration of the company. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there.
0: So I want to go like piece by piece. That's so when you were creating this database, was it primarily sub institutional real estate? And if it was, were you having to cold call basically mom and
1: pop owners to get the deal flow that you wanted? I created the database in FileMaker Pro. It was all non institutional mom and pops, and I cold called everyone because there was no broker trafficking in it.
0: Is that opportunity still available today, or has that largely been evaporated by a lot more people copying your
1: idea? I think that, you know, there's just been so much capital into real estate in the last few cycles that I think. Well specifically in that part of Philadelphia, that's the market is definitely I would say that the trade is packed, everything people realized you could get really high rents and now people are doing ground up construction in that neighborhood, which you know if you were getting five hundred dollars for a one bedroom there 20 years ago, now you need about 1800 or two thousand dollars a month for a one bedroom to make the, the least expensive ground up construction where you buy the land inexpensively work so so to answer your question that was painful for the amount of time we put into it not even counting the financial crisis there was just not that much money to make doing four deals with the total capital four projects with the total capitalization of 30 million dollars or something that's like a very difficult way to make money there's no not a lot of scale there but also if you're just starting there's always an opportunity like that i think that You could probably find that in secondary midwestern cities where no one's done that yet i'm just hypothesizing that there there are relatively few people that have gone and rolled up you know 50 unit apartment buildings in uh, buffalo is not in the midwest but that comes to mind or albany right somewhere like that or or uh you know upstate new york or secondary cities in new england but I think in a top 10 in most top 10 cities, you're going to have to go to really tough neighborhoods if you want to do that. I don't know. Not, not, it, our criteria was always in looking at a neighborhood, there had to be people who were buying single family homes above the first time home buyer limit as an imprimatur of desirability from a residential perspective, period. So we, were ne- we never did sort of workforce anything. It was always targeting the discretionary customer. And today we're obviously focused on, not obviously, we are focused on the most premium locations in each city that we're in.
0: We're going to get there, but I think the first deal is so formative and use the term deal shop. And that's really interesting. I think there's nothing wrong with guys who, who want to have a deal shop, but a lot of people don't truly know what that is you did and you it seemed like had aspirations to have a company that was more than that so so how did you kind of blow those investors off and then capitalize this first deal and build into a different strategy even if it wasn't as the scale as this bigger company
1: that you have today it's still bigger than a deal shop sure so i think a couple things one I realized that we had to have entrepreneurial runway to be able to build a business that could scale itself from its own, you know, sort of retained earnings, if you will. So the first thing was not to have any investors in, in the platform, meaning that there was nobody who put money in for payroll or startup costs who expected to make a return on that money. So that was the first thing I realized. So when I, became a mortgage broker after this didn't work in 2003, I realized it wasn't maybe do this for a year or two and make money. It wound up being almost a decade where three years later, we bought our first building. My brother was running our business full-time in 06, just starting with a 10-unit building. and Then I knew that I was the last person we had to hire because we needed to have in multifamily, and where, when you're doing a lot of development, you have to do accounting yourself. It's not particularly sexy, but, and you can build some, you can do a lot of accounting in a management office. So, and then to the extent there's corporate accounting and you need to build up reporting, if there's a lot of construction, you have to do the accounting, the corporate accounting yourself. Having a, being able to have minimally have a controller, a head of pro, corporate head of property management, and a couple sort of construction and development people. So it took some time what i knew is i needed to build and i could can, can really articulate this today but this is not a subject a lot of people talk about there's not a lot written about it there's a lot written about the 300 million dollar super sexy project with this name and that name and you know starwood blackstone etc but like you know two two guys who want to get away from buying 10 unit buildings the blood and guts of that I didn't, I, I knew what we had to do, but I can articulate that you had to build entrepreneurial runway to the point where the company could support m- more capacity than it had projects to do so that you could grow into that and have credibility. And it doesn't mean we had an unsustainable payroll. It was as simple as if I wasn't taking my cost of living out of the business for some period of time, how many people could that? Salary I wasn't taking pay for, and what could those people do? And that made a big difference. So I didn't work full time for the company until we had AUM at cost, like debt and equity, total capitalization of everything, probably close to six hundred million dollars. And that was, but 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 my brother had to earn a living. So it was one of us, but it was also like the company wasn't really scaled to the point where. We could be doing new projects all the time, and putting new projects together is, is really my main function. I mean, now, many other things. but
0: So, coming out of 2006, building this business, having to scale up a business during this time, presumably, you went from sub-institutional into institutional in the most challenging recent financial crisis we've seen in real estate. What did you learn coming out of that and building a business through that?
1: We executed well on everything we had through the end of 2008, when the world just kind of stopped, when Lehman Brothers went out. We just learned to Focus on executing everything you can that's within your control when the external environment is absolutely horrible. And banks are doing things like taking, you know, three months to fund a construction a construction draw, asking you to curtail extension options, and saying their regulators make extension options on your loan. It's saying that their regulator is making them reappraise the property, and of course, the loan documents don't give them the right to do that. And if it doesn't appraise, you're going to have to give up your your extension option on your loan. And just getting through all of that was you know, quite informative. And it taught me that things can get bad. And sometimes when they get bad, they get bad faster than you think. I think we're in a bit of that period now for some type, some asset types, some types of capital are sort of out of the market completely when you don't expect them to be. So what that taught what that period taught me was just try to be prepared and always just be able to execute to the best of your abilities. And we didn't we didn't have a we didn't have again the, the main the main thing I would take away is we didn't have two principles relying on living from on the from what income the business generated during that time, meaning the, the, ma- the profitability of the overall management company and its subsidiaries didn't need to support both of us, and I, th- I think that was a huge differentiator.
0: What was your main source of capital in those early days? And then when did you start
1: doing institutional deals with bigger LPs? Our main source of capital in the first two projects were High net worth syndications of where the average, i well, sorry, they weren't high net worth. They were, I'd call what mass affluent. There's a lot of podcasts about this today where people think like doing this is a good idea, raising investment, investor money in 25 to $50,000 chunks. And like when things were really flushed, probably until about a year, a year and a half ago, you might be able to raise $10 million from like 200 people. That, that was, that seems really difficult to me. And we raised pro- money for the first two projects, a 10 unit building and a 92 unit building, like 1.2 million, probably from like 30 or 40 investors. That was absolutely horrible. So we quickly, we had some wealthier investors in the mix of that who could really move the needle, helping to fill out a one or two or $3 million capital raise. And then we thought, well, this is good. And we wound up having a couple investors that could write limited partners that could write really substantial checks, even relative to a few million. They could write 20 or $30 million checks and they were sort of putting their toe in the water. And then the world stopped in the end of 2008. We executed through everything. 2009 was definitely a brutal year. So my from my mortgage financing business, commercial mortgage brokerage business, my income went down by 90% over two years, I had a brand new business that all my money was tied up in. I had gotten married in the end of 2007 to my wife, we she was, you know, she was three months pregnant when when Lehman went out and had a child, a, a condo and a mortgage in May of 2009. So my life changed radically in 24 months from May of 2007 to to May of 2009. And then I remember there was sort of a light at the end of the tunnel where we did a third co-founder of the company who my brother and I basically, he'd put in some working capital into the management company and had helped raise some money, but ultimately was not interested in entrepreneurial risk which I don't really know how you make money without taking entrepreneurial risk anyway he didn't want to be involved in the business anymore and informed us of of that in I'd say March of 2009 and we were on loan guarantees together and other things and I was just well you know I don't want to be involved in this anymore either this is like <laughs> this is like horrible you know I'd, I'd like to get my money out and you know it didn't seem like there was anything good that was gonna happen so this that that Person was the only person I've ever bought out of anything, but in the end of two thousand nine, sort of the light came at the end of the tunnel. We were able to like, in within the course of a month, get get our first permanent loan, the first permanent loan anyone had gotten probably in eighteen months. Took out a bank loan and gotten a got a six and a half percent permanent loan on New Year's Eve, going into twenty ten, and then three weeks later, syndicated an eight million dollar got a construction loan for eight or $9 million syndicated between three banks and had to go before the board of each bank to get them to each participate like two to three million. I remember one of them like cut back from three to two and somebody else stepped up from three to four. And it's like you're raising equity in debt. It was just, it was, it was like raising torture. So then, but, but then in 2010, you know, There was a a regular, sort of a regular way permanent financing market starting to emerge again, and we just got this construction loan. So, but for the fact that we'd just been through a really difficult period where all there was, was the worst news every day for a really long time, we didn't have any baggage. We, you know, we got, we had to do two or three more permanent loans, Two did two more permanent loans that year. As I recall, we finished that construction project that I was talking about where we syndicated the construction loan. And really in the fourth quarter of that year, it was like, well, you know, but for the fact of what I just went through, which now appears like it's over, we don't have any issues. We didn't have any projects that went through workouts. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any, we didn't lose any equity on any of the projects. And I attribute that to, you know, the asset class liquidity coming back to that asset class first and just. You know, being really motivated to prove ourselves. And we did what we said we would do. And then in the fourth quarter of 2010, we started to see a lot of distressed opportunities materializing. And from then until the fourth quarter of 2012, we really started to grow the business towards an institutional scale, but with large projects, but with all institutional, non-institutional, limited partners, institutional and scale, but not process of all family offices as investors. And that kind of really started to go well. So we wound up picking up projects that cost with around total project cost of around 600 million at peak capitalization at cost in those two years. So then the business really went from something small and, you know, larger than a proprietor business because we'd been very thoughtful about how we tried to build our infrastructure to, you know, a a fairly significant development business. And so mostly everything we've always done, we've ever done is either taking something that's very underinvested and putting, you know, a multiple of the purchase price into the property as CapEx or lately just building ground up. So it was always a development oriented business. so six hundred million dollars of development is 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 a lot. And the properties that we that we were all into for a cost basis, of call it six hundred million, the purchase price for those four was like a hundred and fifty or one hundred and sixty million. So it was a lot of capEx. yeah. At what point did you decide that you needed
0: to be vertically integrated? and have a GC integrated with the development team, integrated with the management team?
1: I think pretty soon after we started, we realized that small building renovations then In the place we were focusing, Philadelphia, there were not a lot of high quality general contractors, very small, small scale GCs. Think about like a guy with a white van making payroll and cash. So making payroll and cash every Friday, that was not really, it was just, it was easier to find somebody that was trying to aspire to be more than that and internalize that function. And then they had proper accounting and they didn't have to worry about payroll, became our problem to worry about things of that nature. So. We did that from the very beginning. The other thing we always did was always lease and manage for ourselves. In other markets, in other geographies, Washington, DC and Northern New Jersey, where we're active and probably one or two others, which we will be, we're in the process of expanding to. We do not do that. We do not serve as a general contractor. We do serve as a construction manager, meaning A very hands-on owner's rep. We oversee the GC bidding to the subs. We are in every subcontractor project meeting, but we don't staff and we don't typically retain general conditions, personnel at the project level in other markets. But in Philadelphia, we do everything. And did you always manage from the start and was that
0: something that was key to the growth?
1: Definitely. Yeah, in multifamily, so basically um in in our every every real estate asset class has sort of a different way for the sponsors business platform to be profitable. Being a general contractor, we don't charge for that because it's just a misalignment of interests. It's just at our cost. Right. Because if you're just change order and you can't change order, put a change order into yourself. So to answer your question from a management perspective, property, being a property manager and multifamily has n- no margin whatsoever. So there's, you can't even make up for no margin with scale. That's how what, that's what a lousy business it is. So because it's a lousy business. And it's sort of a loss leader. There's not really good third party multifamily management, especially if you're not just a merchant builder. If you're a merchant builder, you might be able to. There's a few good national property management companies that are very good at doing that first lease up, stabilizing a property and selling it. That's not necessarily our model. So we couldn't find good third party management because some of these things we wanted to build, refinance our equity out of, hold because we thought they were going to appreciate or whatever we do it not because it's a money maker but because it's it's uh it's a the only way to get high quality is to do it yourself and accept that that's a loss leader
0: what's the ways that you've found to make money at the opco carried interest promotes that seems obvious but you can't just build a business off of that if the management fees are pretty low margin you're not charging for the construction where are you making money at the business level that's paying for you and your team and then uh, segue that into like how you did that through the start cuz i think that's really interesting where you were involved in the business but not working there and then it came to a certain point where you felt like the business could now absorb you and it made sense
1: to come in it's a great question so everybody this this is this is everyone Sort of figures out how to reach scale their own way because everybody, every entrepreneur is in a different asset class. Every entrepreneur has different things they feel like they're fundamentally good at. So, for us, I can just say, this is not the way to do it. Like I don't recommend anybody to do exactly what we did. start your own GC in a closed labor market, getting like a public fight with the unions. It's, it's something that sounds like it's out of a sopranos episode. You know, be a mortgage broker and have a side business. That's just what worked for us so so, to answer your question, our our business model is really focused on making sure the platform has adequate profitability to. You know, have reserves and retained earnings through a slower period of development starts is overseeing construction and development. Those are two different things. Mm -hmm. Those are two good, those are two pretty good businesses. They're capital intensive, but so property management fees, when you just look at an allocation basis, they're a loser. And if you have, if you're too heavily weighted in that, Either you, but some people just don't stabilize multifamily. If you just don't stabilize multifamily, you're probably not growing because if you own it from developing it, then you're not, you're not going to carry a, a development or growth oriented infrastructure. We very rarely buy cash flowing properties. Not to say we haven't like cash flowing apartments where we don't intend to do a major renovation. So typically with those kinds of projects, you can get an acquisition fee where you find an apartment building. You think it's totally under managed and undervalued, but that's not our regular business. Our regular business is major development. So we're not, we're not set up to sort of churn acquis, buy, buy properties on an acquisition basis that are kind of lend themselves to. Regular financing while you're maintaining cash flow, multifamily candidly is just too too expensive. I was just been like listening to your previous podcast and your point about like I don't know how you buy it with a five going in and get it to a twenty. We've never been able to do that, and you know that five. If you're lucky, it turns out usually is like ten or a twelve. And you know if you go out projecting a ten or a twelve, and you're someone who's trying to who's excited by opportunistic real estate and you attract those kinds of limited partners if you project a 10 or a 12 that's kind of like the the what you get return not the that's what we hoped for so we don't do a lot of we don't do a lot of existing cash flowing acquisitions where there might be five or six other people that could Buy this, buy the property and have a similar business plan. That's not really our bag. Not to say that people can't make money doing that in multifamily. I think buying cash flowing multifamily on a positive leverage basis, certainly for the past decades, been a great business, but that's also been because there's been a lot of cap rent growth and cap rate compression. So, you know, pr- promote is great when you can get it. Candidly, I think the thing we were always really good at is figuring out how to have working capital or retained earnings or both at the corporate level to be able to control properties, certainly for the past decade, control properties through pre-development or buy them so that the limited partners are either coming in up till this current like blip in the office space. We're either doing a joint venture with a landowner. We've done a lot of that where they might not want any money out and you can draft off their equity and they'll contribute a piece of land to a development deal or you can finance, you can give them cash out when a construction loan closes either from the construction loan proceeds if their land is very valuable or a combination of your own equity and that of outside partners. So, just being able to have balance sheet capital to be able to take things through the riskiest part of ownership which isn't to say we don't bring in partners when we buy things as a matter of fact that I'll talk about that in a minute but you know today I think there's a really interesting distressed acquisition environment in the office to multifamily space so when you're buying those things cheaply, you have to close way before you're ready to close a construction loan. But what I would say is the platform is sort of perpetuated itself by virtue of just continuing with the kinds of projects we've been generally doing, not looking to have intermediated money that's purely IRR driven, which we have had in the past, even if it's from high net worth individuals, you know, the entire real estate industry is driven from IRR driven by IRR-oriented investing, which is like I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, it's it's the way you measure. It's the it's the truest way to measure whether an investment is has a large margin of safety or not by sensitizing the IRR on the upside and the downside. On the upside, it's kind of pointless. Like no one's ever seen a bad pro forma. But if you're building a multifamily asset. To five percent unleveraged return on cost, and the market to sell it was three and a half to four. It probably looks great at five, but your IRR is going to be terrible if cap rates go to five percent. So, I think the main thing we've been able to do is avoid expensive capital at the wrong time. That's how I think we've we've just perpetuated the business. And what's your preferred playbook
0: for tying up these land sites, or maybe it's a building that needs a massive renovation, or you mentioned an office conversion. What's the playbook that you found to be the best? Is it cash out at the refinance? Is it, hey, I'm going to have this joint venture partner that's just a landowner?
1: What's worked for you guys? Ultimately, as a sponsor, your job is to make money for the other people you're supposed to make money for and you. And hopefully those things are somewhat equal uh, or somewhat aligned. So the ch- what we try to look for and what I would tell any young person to look for is something where you're needed. You can do something that no one else can. Like, there's somebody who owns a piece of land. They have a tax sensitivity. They're personally very difficult. They've got generational issues or all of those things. And you can solve all of those things for them, right? You can drive a very favorable deal for yourself. Or, you know, somebody's got an asset where no one can figure out the zoning. Or they just, you know, it's somebody who owns cash flowing office buildings and they had one tenant and the tenant just moved out. And they don't want a foreclosure on their record, and the bank doesn't want to take it back. They don't want to put money into it. So, you know, you go to the lender and you say, I need. I need, I need, I'm going to turn this back into a conforming loan for you. I need favorable terms. I'm going to turn this into an apartment building. Maybe you've lent me money before. Maybe I'm your borrower on something else. You give me a hundred percent financing. I'll size up the loans and then I'll, I'll fill up the reserves, pay for pre-development. Then you give me a construction loan. So it seems, it might seem counterintuitive, but to somebody looking to, Get into multifamily, which is just so competitive. Find, stay, if you're starting to get into the space, unless you've got the right cost of capital to buy things that are cash flowing, marketed, and lend themselves to being financed easily, find things that no one else knows how to do or no one else wants to do. And then just get better at better at that. And you just sort of, you'll have an anti-fragile business model because you become the first call on these things that no one wants all around the country or a- anywhere you want, you get those calls. And so I don't know that we exactly set out to build the business this way, but now we just really... G- geographically focused on certain markets, best locations in those markets, and assets that need something that not everyone can do to maximize them.
0: We kind of skipped over all this, but give the listeners uh, like some insight into the size and scale of
1: what Post Brothers is today. It's, it's, we, we skipped over it because it's like not the, not the exciting parts. They're just statistics. So we've, over the existence of the company, we, we have had about owned about 40 assets, but a lot of those were multi asset partnerships. So I don't know how many quote unquote deals we've done, investments we've made. Today we have three and a half billion of assets at cost about. Half of those are in construction or pre-development and but by, by, oh no, sorry, more than half. About 2 billion of that is under construction or owned and in pre-development. And about a billion and a half r- round numbers at cost is our st- uh, stabilized cash flowing assets. And so that's about 4,000 units in the pipeline, give or take, and a little less than 3,000 on a stabilized basis. So when you're
0: looking at 4,000 units under construction in the pipeline, you have a massive team to support that effort. Once that stuff starts to turn and deliver, now you need to find new deals for those people to stay active. How do you resist the temptation to do shitty deals to kind of keep the thing going, and does that go back to your base strategy of building a company with some retained earnings so you don't feel forced to do every single deal that's put across your desk?
1: So that is a that is a, that is a great question. How do you how do you support a company that has you know an expense? You know it costs money to pay people, especially in. A, it costs it cost money to pay people, and that money seems very expensive when no one's active. I, I will tell you the answer is that we've discovered don't do every deal that comes your way. Generally, we have a pretty disciplined way of looking at this, which is sizing opportunities and markets. We know conservatively we're going to option or otherwise commit to around a billion dollars of development starts on an annualized basis. But if we wound up doing Way more deals than that, just because, I mean, you know, as, as an, as a somebody who really enjoys real estate transactions, you get so many deals sent your way. I mean, we did, we, our worst deals were deals that I would just say deals to do deals. Like somebody's like, Oh, you should buy this. It's cheap. And it just wound up being sort of return free risk. We, you know, it's, it's multi and it's been a really good run. So we didn't, there was stuff we didn't really lose money on, but you know, we stuff that we, We had some things we broke even on. We made an 8% IRR and it was like, that was a shitload of work. Nobody wanted to work on it because it was like a a sort of undercapitalized, not super well-conceived business plan as we were spending money on these buildings. We were realizing we weren't getting a super high return on the invested dollars. And so you know, we were lucky when we sold it, but that took time. And what I realized was those really non-linear, difficult to execute deals where you maybe wind up selling it to what the next person when, in fact, you were the next person and you got lucky, you found somebody else. That's how you have organizational creep, where you have a less than clear investment strategy, you commit yourself to too much transactional activity, and then you have to have a lot of staff to execute on projects that aren't going to actually provide anything in terms of net asset value to, you know, to the owners of the platform or of the business. So just really being disciplined about like what, you know, we could, somebody called me today, they're like, you can buy this vacant building. And it's like, well, you know, our criteria is we have to make a certain amount of, there has to be a certain amount of gross dollar profit for us a, a, a given project profile. And like yeah, this, this building's cheap, but like how much money can we really make? And then if there's projects where we can make five times as much money and I don't want to feel distanced or disintermediated from my projects, like I don't know what's going on because I've got the B team working on something because I needed to hire people that weren't, of the A team caliber, and they are—they're people who know they're sort of the framing crew, getting relegated to the second tier project, and they're sort of like accepting of that. Then they're probably going to do a shitty job. So, g- getting away from doing things outside of your core competency in realist in multifamily real estate development is how you wound up having how you wind up having a beast that's too big to f- you know that c- needs to be fed too much. I think.
0: Can you walk us through the deal process now at post So, like, you know, maybe this phone call today is not the best example, but kind of walk us through the criteria you do, you use to evaluate what the process looks like from start to
1: signing up a deal. I think that, so today, there are a lot of opportunities today. We did adaptive reuse and conversions before many other people did them. That's multi- office to multifamily or anything to multifamily. So we did about a billion dollars of those kinds of properties at costs historically like prior to there being a general sense that a lot of office was becoming obsolete in the aftermath of, of, of COVID and being available at distressed prices. So I think if anything our our opportunity screening criteria is greater today because there's there's lots of shitty deals even if they're distressed they might not be cheap enough or they might just be too much work so I think our criteria is you know flexibility of the seller in terms of price and terms like if they want a fast closing then it has to be seller financed and or very fairly priced and we have to make a certain amount of money for doing the project irrespective of the project fees. Like The returns have to be a little bit higher than they were on an unleveraged basis a year ago. When you say a little bit higher, why isn't it a lot higher? Because of course, we'd like it to be a lot higher, but remember we do development. So the cost of buying a building Is this happened to us last week? We we bought we we this happens to us all the time. So we bought a building in Washington, DC from basically in a short sale. And the project, the building was $66 million. And like the lender didn't really actually take a loss. It was just like they never foreclosed. So they were owed $66 million and we got the deed for got the property for $66 million and the borrower signed us the deed. And so and, they, and the borrower went away. So then, like, I'm going to have to spend another $250 million to convert that or $200 million of hard costs to convert that building to multifamily. Then I ran into somebody and they said... Uh, you know, I really like that building, but I think you overpaid for it. And it was, it was, oh, I overpaid for it. So let's just let's just do the math. My unleveraged project cost is two hundred and sixty-six million dollars. So it's a big project. And was, what would you have paid for? It? Oh, like it's not more than sixty. Okay, so let's just unpack that. So maybe your costs <laughs> would be lower, maybe not. But your rents are going to be lower. If your costs are going to be lower, and I happen to know this person, and they can't even. That they're in, they're incapable of building the same quality of project we would build, and maybe not capable of building anything. But let's just say they could build the same thing. So two hundred and sixty-six million versus two hundred and sixty million. Unless you're trading treasury bonds on a daily basis, two percent of margin. Means nothing. It's either the best. It, so it's like my deal is the shittiest deal in the world at 266 and yours is the greatest deal in the world at 260. I'm so, 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 so basically the screening process is don't get hung up on price because I heard Howard Mark say this and actually validated. It made me feel validated. I don't know if it actually validated anything he was saying that of all the things in the world, paying two or 5% more on an operationally intensive business plan, being it buy a business or a piece of real estate, and you have to invest a whole bunch of time and money, paying 2% more or 5% more or anything is the least predictive indicator of the outcome of the investment. So it's like, try to get a fair price terms are more important. Don't be stuck into doing anything uncomfortable such as putting up a larger deposit than you're comfortable doing because if you're not comfortable putting up you know, a certain amount of money as a deposit, that just means that you're not comfortable in your ability to close the deal and to close on the investment because there's things you need to do, most likely raise capital through debt and equity. If you don't have the ability to close yourself and there's no seller financing, how do you... So, so not getting put in a, so not getting put in an uncomfortable position. Fair terms, gross profit margin. You know, within the the idea of you know these are pure development projects being a certain amount of dollars, and you know stress stress testing the downside and downside case on the investment in terms of higher cap rates.
0: There's something to be said about being in the game. And that $6 million spread, there's no way in hell that that will ever, ever make the deal a success or a failure. But if you were never in that deal, you might not get your next deal. You might not have another deal in DC that someone's going to give you. And the the little six million dollar is is just a rounding error to the potential opportunities that you can create, which might be a savings. It might not be. It might just be future deals or
1: nothing. Right. And to your that I, I would agree with you. And to your point is if I, I'm generally right on all of my assumptions. And the only thing that I can't control are exit cap rates and let's say the thing when it's fully capitalized has 60 80 million dollars of equity in it you know some very large amount of money whether you break even or make 6 million dollars of gross profit that both of those outcomes suck so <laughs> given all the work you're putting into it so you know and losing 6 million dollars is 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 pretty bad too like but it, it's those are all equally bad outcomes when you put all that time and work into something of that nature. I mean it's a half a city block in downtown Washington in a premier location i I, I would think that lots of things are going to go right because of the location and you know that's that's we think we got the best structure for us in terms of the overall acquisition
0: of that property. So on that deal, I, I do something called Sharpie math. It's just like math. You could just simply write out to to know if it's going to work out. On that deal, your all-in cost is $266 million. What are the little metrics that you're looking at just on a simple one-page piece of paper to have the gut
1: instinct to know that this makes sense? There's nothing else besides that, actually. It is just... It, it, I mean, real estate... I mean, Multifamily is incredibly simple. Uh, I think all real estate asset classes, if it's all you do, it's incredibly simple. Your total costs are the denominator. You don't incorporate the costs of financing like interest carry and, and lender transaction costs, nor do you trend the rents. So if my denominator is 26 million, I feel like I need to be I need to make between six and a half and seven percent on that. If I can make $18 million of free cash flow on that property, on today's rents without trending them, would I buy that today? That's probably 300 basis points over the risk-free rate. So I'm pricing my construction risk into that because it's 300 basis points. It's not 100 basis points. Yes, do that deal all day long. That's it. Price your yeah sorry. Go ahead. Want to be smarter than I am? No, no, (laughs) definitely. I am. I am not that smart because I just I I don't. I try not to think about exit cap rates because exit cap rates are a function of one thing, and that's how much capital there is in the market at any given time, not where the treasury is. So I'm thinking about today's treasury is theoretically, the risk-free rate. I can't think of anything that would be less risky. So the 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 treasury is the risk-free rate. I don't want to be 150 basis points. People talk about where you think exit cap rates are going to be. No, I want to be north of 200 basis points, well north over today's risk-free rate. And when treasuries were, the 10-year treasury was 1.5%, we 3.5% wasn't an acceptable return. So that's how I think about that. Can I be, you know, can I be well north of a 6% unleveraged, untrended return on cost? Yes, I think so on that investment. And I feel great about that. Now, a lot of people would say, well, just talking about multifamily, right? A lot of people are saying, well, I think you should be closer to seven. Well, that would imply, again, Somebody would say you need to underwrite a higher exit cap. So you need to underwrite a higher return on cost. I would say that is nonsense. You need to be able to hold through a time when exit caps are ho- really high. Because if you're underwriting to a 7% return on cost, not to get overly myopic in super prime locations in coastal cities, you're either, you're either n- you know, misinformed or being overly optimistic about your underwriting assumptions, or you're not going to do. You're not going to find any investments to make in today's environment because the market is very, very efficient, and people use people correlate costs and rents and construction costs and rents and asset costs, and you just have to find that little band to outperform. So, you know, historically, multifamily class A cap rates have been on trailing underwriting around 4%. So, that doesn't mean we've ever used 4%. And it also doesn't mean we've ever sold, we've sold everything at the perfect time. But generally, like, that's why I think exit cap underwriting is arbitrary unless you ab- is somewhat of an arbitrary. For I'm thinking too hard about the exit versus what can go wrong is not a great way to invest. I'm starting to feel
0: that real estate cap rates are really, you know, it's more of a moment in time, but unlevered yielding cost yield on cost is actually the truer risk pricing for a specific asset class and over the averages what you're saying is multifamily is somewhere between this 5 to 6% range hotels would be higher in my world and then when you compare that to long run averages on treasuries those obviously are not at 4 or 5% they're not at you know high threes they're under 3 so that's really the point When you're looking at making an investment, how you differentiate between what your risk free rate is and what the unlevered yield on cost is. But I don't think like they're moving a lot. Like it's not a good judge. It doesn't move with interest rates. No. Your unlevered yield
1: on cost was where it was. Right. Permanent interest rates, like, right. So they don't move with interest rates at all. Interest rates are correlated to to just availability of equity capital and how investors are feeling like nobody nobody underwrites a value add i'm sure you don't underwrite a value add hotel to below where you to an exit an unlevered return below where you think interest rates are going to be well nobody does that with multifamily except you have you sell them you sometimes you can sell them and the buyer is finance is they're buying they'll buy at a four cap and they'll finance at a four and a half percent interest rate, well, they probably think there's going to be a bunch of rent growth. So that's the point is that, you know, there's there's, there certainly in multifamily people buy with negative leverage all the time with reasons why, but it's a common thing. On this deal, it's actually a great example
0: because it's a huge office building, just uh, amazing architecture. I know the deal. There's going to be a ton of these office buildings coming to market, and they're not going to remain office. And there's this housing shortage that we keep hearing about. So, how are you thinking about in this deal specifically doing a big, massive conversion? And how do you even underwrite that? Like, how do you know what the costs are? How do you figure out the unit layouts? Or is that actually not all that
1: complicated? It's not. It's not complicated if it's what if it's what if it's something you, you've. Been doing for a long time. No, you can, you can look at the zoning. Look at can you add to the building? Is it too big for what's allowed to be built? You know, how much square footage can I get out of the building? Both by limitations of how it can be added onto, and is there a height limit? Is there a physical limitation? So you can. It's pretty prescriptive. If you're an experienced. Adaptive reuse developer who's done a lot of adaptive reuse. You can look at the zoning, the nature of the structure. You can figure out how big of a building you can build. Then you, we have people in house that can just lay out a floor plan of the units. Then you figure out, you know, how much rent can I get both back into a per square foot and gut check that with gross rent or the other way around we actually prefer gross rent like what is somebody getting for a one bedroom nearby doesn't matter if it's bigger ours is going to be better what's our square foot rent okay fine and then you know operating expenses are very straightforward i think when it comes to multifamily new construction and then you there your costs and that's that's how we go about doing that so we can pretty quickly analyze a new investment. I think that a lot of office is going to become multifamily because there's such a housing shortage. And the housing shortage, I'm actually long on these downtowns because the suburbs of every top 10 city that has excellent school districts, there's no new construction. like people don't want new construction in these first tier suburbs so like where where you're from where i live now the main line like you can't you can't you can't even find a lot in a neighborhood divide into two lots so if there's 300 people that want to move there you know and there's a hundred houses on the market and for 2 million dollars you're getting a pretty good house but not everybody can buy a 2 million dollar house at all and for a million dollars you are sort of disappointed of what you get but you're very much an upper middle class person by any standards if you can buy a 1 million dollar house you're going to stay renting for longer because you're going to wait until you can save to buy something better or maybe you think the market's going to correct so it's interesting there's for, for urban development for urban class A development in premier locations, there's tremendous tailwinds because people are staying renters for longer. And then, of course, there's tailwinds for other parts of the country in terms of housing markets because you know, the, the law firm associate in Philadelphia is eventually going to be a partner. They're staying there. But the person who works in a not as high paying job in a place like Philadelphia or Washington, they're going to say, you know. Maybe I'm just going to move to somewhere an hour from Dallas and I can buy a really nice house for $600,000. That's, that's the tailwinds behind the rest of the country is, you know, difficulty, forget about difficulty of doing business because I think you're, you're compensated for difficulty of doing business in the, you know, East and West coast sort of blue states by the fact that Speculative supply will never be a thing in those markets, right? It's a pain, and it t- everything takes a long time. But you know, you'll you'll never get caught with downward pressure on rents because you've got massively diversified economies, you've got an enormous amount of wealth, and very little threat of new supply. Similarly, in some of these other, you know, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Carolina cities, while they're becoming less pro-growth. Everything takes, everything is faster to do. But of course, there's also for multifamily, lower barriers to entry of supply. You can always build, you know, very close to the Everglades in South Florida, depending on where you are, or like, there's always one more cornfield. And so not, not, not to say that I think you know, negatively about any of these markets, but there's tailwinds in every housing market. Some of them are more prone to overbuilding than not, but we're fundamentally overhoused.
0: A lot of people are focusing on the Southeast, these smile states. A lot of people are moving there. I live here in Florida. You are incredibly bullish on these Northeast blue states, as you describe them. I think DC had like 20% or something of workers like move away. Is there any validity in an argument that some of these cities are just not going to go back to where they were in 2019 because people have moved elsewhere? Why?
1: New York is just, it has an office obsolescence supply issue. It has a housing shortage, really obvious. Philadelphia, it's already 90, it's already 75% Seventy-five percent back in office traffic, office key swipes, are seventy-five percent of what they were, even though vacancies higher. So we're probably they're probably ninety percent back. Multifamily's never been stronger than it is. Washington D.C. is more resilient than New York. Like you can't have. The, the attorneys and lobbying firms can't go anywhere else. The twenty percent of move away people—that's not who I'm building for. Like, mm-hmm. if you are a tax controversy lawyer and you're 29 and you work at Skadden Arps and they pay you, you bill your clients eighteen hundred dollars an hour and you're like a senior associate, uh, you can't you can't do that anywhere else. So that's really that's really what we're focused on—is a super sticky pockets of you know long term renters. Within our core business, so even within those, even within these markets, there's lower barrier to entry submarkets. We are not focused on those where you're delivering a commodity product to not the most affluent renter in the market. So right now, our our strategy is focused on delivering to those people. Other than you know, real estate entrepreneur, you know, probably the 200 real estate entrepreneurs I know that have moved to South Florida but i also think that's i know probably all 200 it's not like 200 and then there's way more so the 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 200 people that i know that could pick up and go and maybe another 200 hedge fund people right that we're not really losing a lot of a lot of upper income people in these markets and that's what drives the higher end of the rental market and so i you know i don't i don't think that their downtowns are going to be changed forever i think some of them have had Really difficult and unpredictable governance and governments, which is just idiotic because that's what drives away investment. It's not necessarily driving away jobs that have to be there, but it just makes investors not want to be there. Like what if you've seen like how New York deregulated it makes an, it, it makes investment unattractive when there's, when the, when the rules are changed. So like things like, New York and Washington had vacancy deregulated. That just killed in buildings that were built before a certain date. That killed investment in those buildings for obvious reasons, and it made people more tentative to invest new money in those markets. But then, long term, like because there's more regulation on part of the market at the top of the market that's not regulated, rents have gone through the roof. So I do I do acknowledge that, uh, without question, that some of these markets have need a bit of a thaw in the short term to attract new capital, even if the fundamentals are really doing well. Your buildings
0: are known for having an incredible design sensibility, and something that we try and do on the hospitality side is to differentiate ourselves through design, amenities, service. And I'm guessing you see a similar thing in hospitality where a lot of this stuff just gets commoditized, like everyone's buying the same kind of flooring and cabinets why are you so focused on design and what are the amenities that you are really prioritizing like take you know this office building that you're going to convert you have a lot of space what are the things that you're going to be doing
1: there so i think w- we try to be innovative the way that the innov- the way that somebody like you is innovative in how you reposition or operate or amenitize a hotel so there's stuff that people just don't pay for. Like, for instance, that are of the moment, like a, a golf simulator. Like, we, we actually do have a golf simulator in one of our properties, but it's a small amenity. They'll have like an amenity space with like a, a, a 100 square foot bar area like a movie theater with six seats a popcorn machine and a golf simulator we'll have a golf simulator in like a 30,000 foot co-working space so what we do do to differentiate the amenities the amenities is keep them simple large scale and super high quality so we're going to have the nicest pool a gym that's nicer than an equinox nicer than any gym you can pay for in the neighborhood and the size of a commercial gym we're going to have a great co-working space attended lobby with, uh, you know, a hospitality, you know, a concierge behind the desk that's worked in hospitality and apartment finishes, finished materials that no one's ever used in multifamily before. We just try to be on the cutting edge. Materials are always evolving. So I think flooring, counters, things you can touch, how the model units are furnished, fixtures, kitchens, HVAC, whisper quiet kind of HVAC, not like HVAC that makes a lot of noise. We try to make it like we try to we're catering to a renter that can afford to rent something for that's the most expensive thing in the market. So they still have to feel like they're getting a value or they're going to go rent the non amenitized thing. Um, the way we're able to drive rents and amenity rents in the projects with different with differentiated finishes and design is because we do the finished procurement and a lot of the interior design in-house. We have a finished materials procurement affiliate that does do third-party work. So so we buy all the things, not things like drywall and uh, wires and things that nobody pays for and you can't see because those are commodities, but things you can see that make the apartment, makes the building the apartment or the common areas or some aspect different so we do all those things in house and we're able to deliver what someone else can build for what someone else spends 300 dollars a foot in hard costs for if we were going to build that it would cost us a third less so we wind up spending close to that same 300 dollars a foot but something we wind up with something just vastly superior and then we rents are 20 or 30% higher and there will never be competition that's our theory you have this piazza project
0: and literally the pool i think it's on like a parking garage or something it looks like a vegas pool it looks nicer than any miami hotel pool it's crazy and it's like right in downtown philadelphia And you get to use it maybe three months out of the year so you should it's open the whole
1: year it out. it's open the
0: whole year oh it is yeah oh okay so Matt, you you got You guys have to check out what's what Matt's talking about. Are there any ideas that you haven't, or strategies that you haven't implemented yet at Post Brothers that in the next three years you are definitely going to
1: pursue? No, I think that I think that we just want to continue to create the best in class buildings in sub markets that have tailwinds that we feel comfortable about, and I think that as, as you mentioned having the beast get too large to feed is a thing. I don't ever want to have three corporate offices, right? I don't mind if we have a project management office in Washington or Houston or somewhere we're doing a project, but I don't want to have a massive sprawling corporate infrastructure. We like being based in one place, the, the main team is here. So I think we can expand in a linear fashion into other markets, into other places doing multifamily development. I don't know. I think, I think, I think there's the continued, the continued hospitality orientation. Of multifamily, I think, as I think you and I were talking about the other day, doing like a project with some hybrid short-term rental extended stay that that could be interesting in terms of new projects. But no, I think, I think we found a formula, which is category killer size multifamily with totally differentiated amenities that really can't have competition. And then just, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, when other people realize that Think pricing is attractive in in my business. Sometimes it's just that just means it's too late when lots of people have figured out that the deals are good. One
0: opportunity that you and I spoke about is just that. It's this like furnished apartment model. Not many groups are doing it. It doesn't really exist in hospitality except for kind of the lower end. You know, you have like residence in or homewood suites or something. But to have a fully Amenitized apartment building with a beautiful furnished apartment that would work for someone for three weeks or three months, you know a project job I think is incredibly interesting. The question is how do they interact with the permanent residents and you have to be able to charge enough, which I think you can in order to justify the vacancy
1: well i think I think the the Carlisle Hotel is a good example of that, but <laughs> there's not a lot of those right I think that I think that if you do it within a very high end building and you have hospitality services siloed to support the not people who aren't on annual leases, and you ha so you don't have the apartment building concierge whose really their job is just to is just to say hello to the Three hundred people that live there, and you know, direct dry cleaning drop-offs and Amazon packages are their own thing. So, and you know, if, if there's just you know, to, not even to field complaints because that's what a management office is, but it's a single concierge, you know, behind a desk for the apartment residents who has who has who has limited defined tasks other than saying hello, and then. A hotel desk that is really like a hotel check-in desk slash concierge for the extended, for the people on short-term rentals. Maybe it's their own lobby, maybe it's not, depending on the number of units. But, you know, we've had, um as we, we spoke about this, we've had the sort of low, lower end, I would just call them Airbnb brokerage services that'll sign a lease from you for part of the building. I mean, it, you, when you're talking about somebody who's Trying to undercut a three star hotel by on a nightly basis that's bringing traffic into your building you don't want. So, really, really, you know, being brand aligned, so to speak, I think is is pretty interesting. Having a brand aligned hospitality concept in a class A multifamily building, I think could be interesting. I'm interested to see if. You know hospitality demand remains, and it's very difficult to build just spitballing. It's very difficult to build on the ocean in Florida, and there's no land left, but people want more resort hotels a lot of res- a lot of ocean front hotels are becoming for sale housing. You know does that mean that does that mean that there's going to be more opportunity in you know countries neighboring the u s to the south that are don't feel like they have a lot of political risk but they're just difficult historically people have had a hard time building in certain places in the caribbean or or for instance but but they're you know interesting markets like that's just something that piques my curiosity but not not in a an industrial scale
0: everyone wants to be a hotelier you everybody has your magic hotel. Everybody, I
1: think it comes down to everyone who's you know successful. So, how do you feel about that? Because you-
0: I am. So I actually worked for Core K O R. Yeah, of course. Right before I went to law school, and they built the nicest resort that'll probably ever get built in the Caribbean. Y- that's exactly got what totally I was Totally blown about. out. Yeah. So yeah, they built the Viceroy and it got foreclosed out and then Starwood Capital, Barry bought it and made it a Four Seasons. It's, there's residences, it's one of a kind, but it's hard to imagine that something like that ever gets built given the timeline, the risk, the ability to construct on that island or on any island. And then labor is also kind of a challenge too. So I... Think it's tough. I, I I actually think though that these smaller scale resorts have more legs than these bigger master plan resorts. And you could do a smaller resort and then continuously add on with residential. And that I actually think is a little bit more interesting because you don't have to take on the entire master plan thing in one shot. I looked at 2 I'm
1: I'm. Grinning to myself because I've, we've, we've looked at doing things like this and it's just that the whole master plan, we have to build an enormous amount of infrastructure over a lot of area. And sort of where I got back to was like exactly what you just said. Can you put all the infrastructure on like five acres or 10 acres or better yet, three acres? Just have something that carries itself on three acres and you can stay there for free and say you own it. Right. But, but then th- where those business plans go wrong is they're all torqued up with lot out sales and like in the Caribbean, you've got hurricanes and like, labor issues and permitting issues and labor issues. And you solved all that and here comes another hurricane. So <laughs>
0: it's, um, yeah, like Baker's Bay, which is this discovery land property in Bahamas and just legendary got almost wiped out in 19 or 18. Yeah. And, uh, People lost, you know, people had $20 million houses that were just sitting there with no roofs, no windows. Some of them were fine. And just, you know, money wasn't an issue. Insurance was challenging. A lot of people didn't have insurance, but just to rebuild that took a tremendous amount of time and effort. And these are people with, you know, unlimited resources that are at this one place. But it's, it's hard to beat. It's beautiful. St. Bart's, I think, is really interesting in the Caribbean, but it, i don't I always wonder if the time to make a lot of money on these places have passed us. Like, was that the you know ten years ago and and we missed the opportunity? Like you need a really good crisis to create these opportunities for someone.
1: You need basis. I agree. you need you need something creating the right basis. I think the, today, the opportunity for St. Bart specifically might be. If there's anything available there, which I have no idea if there is or not, it's going to be priced through the roof because there's such proof of concept. I think you need a down market and a place that has had limited proof of concept to really, to really find the right opportunity when it comes to probably any kind of resort development. When you're dealing with environmental permitting issues, even in the U.S., because that just adds so much time to a project, and then in another country, you know, add all all of the other issues that we don't really have so but i like building apartment buildings a very straightforward business well maybe you'll get into single family
0: rentals i mean that's uh something that is becoming incredibly popular in like these kind of fake truman communities
1: we've looked at it a lot and the concern is the durability of the durability of the economy in these places, right? Because there's a reason that the home that home builders that, that that industry started in the places it now proliferates, because entire subdivisions were built on spec, and then they were just the the, the developers went bankrupt, so people bought them in mass and then rented them out. So now people are building them at no advantaged basis, or until very recently, I think. Interest rates may have put a damper on this and I'm not really sure, but the places I've looked at, you know, for our own business, we have a test, would you want to live here? And where we see a lot of opportunity in BTR, if you can't relate to wanting to live somewhere or you don't understand the customer, right? I'm Maybe I'm setting the bar too high because of my own personal experiences and my age and The fact that I've lived in where I've lived forever, but if you can't understand, if you can't, there's people that understand that customer. That's just that's just not us. I think I think I think. Look, people have made people. It seems like people have made a ton of money with it. One thing I'll say objectively is, while your renter seems to stay there for longer than they do an apartment, so your turnover is not as frequent. You factually, when the house has had people living there for ten years you have to replace everything inside of it and systems. And when you have a garden apartment complex, which we don't own garden apartments either, but it seems just intuitive to me that, you know, with a garden apartment complex on one acre, you might have 15 apartments in a BTR community in one acre, you might have four houses, so you have less density of improvements, four yards, four base building systems and four roofs versus one base building system and one roof. So I think, I think the capital and the capex, the recurring capex needs of those BTR communities might start to accumulate over time. But I, I don't know. It's that that's something that's pretty far from what we're what we're our, our core skill set. I'm really comfortable building like 400 units on an acre of land in downtown Washington for million. And I, you know, that's pretty far from that. I
0: ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. And that is out of all the hotels in the world, what
1: is your favorite hotel? So, city hotels. I think London has some pretty incredible city hotels because of the juxtaposition of the really old buildings and architecture and the fact that people spend so much money to modernize the insides and in they're real like jewel boxes so the we just stayed in the Berkeley hotel in London that was really awesome and then we stayed at another hotel called the Corinthia on the other side, of, which was re- really similar similar style hotel. So those are two two hotels that just stick out in my mind. Not to say there's no hotels in the United States that stick out in my mind, but I'm just gonna. I have a lot of friends who are in the hotel business, so I'm not going to pick any hotels in the U.S. <laughs> that should show partiality so i would say and then the favorite not city hotel i've stayed in recently stayed in some amans and they're all a little different but i think they're i like them i'm not saying they're hyped but they're they do a really good job there total sleeper hotel and it's actually it's sort of like not really a hotel there's a place I stayed in the British Virgin Islands on Virgin Gorda called Oil Nut Bay, which is actually actually a giant housing development. So it's as far west as you can go in the Virgin Islands before you get to the U.S. Virgin Islands to the British Virgin Islands. It's really hard to get to, but it's almost all houses around a central resort core. And you rent some of the houses from the guy who built them, and you rent When I say rent, it's a nightly, but I mean, you're not going there and staying there for a night unless you're a masochist, because it's, it's really hard to get to. And so, so that, that's my kids loved it there. It's like the weather is perfect. It's like not too crowded. And, you know, if you have a family, you want, you want more space, you get a house. So that's probably, that's been my lingering want to go back to for like a beach vacation place. I love
0: it. I actually, we're going to a place this summer in St. Moritz and someone recommended to me on the podcast. I'm going to go to Oil Nut Bay for sure. We should do it together with the family. It would be fun. Thanks for coming on the pod, man. This was awesome.
1: Anytime. Thanks for having me, Jake.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at JayWorzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Worzak is the founder and
1: CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dovehill Capital Management. This
0: podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.